every Sunday when we gather. Let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. While you're turning there, I'll say a few words of introduction. I want to begin with a question. As Christians, why is it that we so often doubt? Why are we so often struck with doubts about God's goodness or His provision or about His purpose in our life? I want to suggest to you a few reasons why we so often doubt. First, because we have an incomplete sense of God's Word, or that is to say, we're not quite sure really what God has in fact promised us. And so we form our expectations based on other influences. For example, our culture pressures us to accept its values. And based on these values, we form expectations about how God should deal with us. In similar sense, our circumstances put a pressure on us, where we think that if we're going through some kind of difficult circumstance, it must be, or perhaps it is, because God has forgotten, because God doesn't care. Well, these aren't right answers to the situations that we often face. They're not right answers to the pressures that we face in our culture, but they are common answers. We are like Peter so often, who could at, the one, at one moment step out onto the sea and walk, invited by his Lord, and yet when looking at the wind and the waves, become afraid and begin to sink and have to cry out, Lord, save me. We take our eye off of the only one who can assure us in the storm of life. And so we doubt. So what's the solution? What's the solution that will strengthen our faith in difficult times? The answer is that we need to be recalibrated to a standard. Just like a machine operator, a machinist working in a factory, calibrates his gauges to a particular standard, we need to calibrate our expectations, our hopes, our ambitions, our sense of greatness, our sense of the good life to the standard that God has given us in His Word and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's my hope this morning that Luke chapter 7 will serve for us as this standard this morning. So if you found your place in Luke 7, would you follow along with me from verse 18 as I read to verse 35? The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, Those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it was written, 
It is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children, sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He is a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet... Wisdom is justified by all her children. Father in heaven, we pray, Lord, this morning that you would give us your light, that we might understand and receive your word. We pray that you would send your spirit, that he might enlighten our minds and open our hearts, that we might receive it with faith, that we might be people who are not given to doubting, but who are strengthened in faith through your word, as our expectation and our hopes and our desires are conformed to your word and to your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me give you an outline, briefly, of our sermon this morning. Where we're going to go as we look at this text is going to divide neatly for us into three parts. We're going to, in fact, receive three lessons that will encourage us in our faith, that will encourage us to believe The first is a lesson in true blessedness. The second lesson is a lesson in true greatness. And the third is a lesson in true righteousness. And each of these lessons is designed to encourage us to trust more firmly in Christ and to trust in Him as we see that He is the one who is bringing to pass all that God has purposed. So begin with me as we look in verse 18 and we see a lesson in true blessedness. Now here, John's disciples go to him, and if you remember from Luke chapter 3, John was arrested by Herod. John is now in prison, and his disciples go to him, and they report to him all of these things. We naturally wonder, what are these things? The most natural answer is to say that it's what we've just seen in Luke chapter 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 7. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus healed the centurion, the, the first narrative, and then he raised the widow's son. But we ought not to think that his disciples only spoke about those things, but rather all the things that Jesus had been doing, the things that Jesus is bringing to pass. And they went to John, and they reported those things to him. And that raised for John some questions. So he called two of his disciples, and he sent them to the Lord. He sent them to Jesus, and they had a question that John posed to them and that they relayed to Jesus. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? What we see in this picture is a picture, as one has said, of a doubting prophet. This might surprise us, because John was particularly commissioned by the Lord to be the final prophet who prepared the way for the Christ, the one who would go before him and prepare his ways. And John did that. And John understood, we saw in Luke chapter 3, very well who Jesus was. For when the people began in Luke chapter 3 to wonder, perhaps John is the Christ. 
there in verse 15, we read, as the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. He spoke that there was one who was coming after him. And he said to them, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat in his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. There John spoke both of salvation and of judgment, and he declared that in the hands of the one who came after him would be that work of salvation and that work of judgment. This formed John's expectation for the Christ. He was preparing the way for one who would save God's people, but he was also preparing the, one, the way for the one who would bring a final judgment. And that's what John was expecting. That's what John was looking for. So I'm sure he was astounded by what Jesus was doing. I'm sure he found it quite remarkable that Jesus was healing the servant of a Gentile centurion and that he was raising the son of a widow in Nain. I'm sure that as he heard these reports, he found them extraordinary, just as we are struck by how extraordinary these things are. And yet he wondered, how does this fit the picture? How does this fulfill my expectations? And he asked, are you, Jesus, are you the one that we're to wait for? Or should we look for another? John's expectations were formed by Scripture, and his expectations were right, but his expectations were also incomplete. John was positioned at a particular time in redemptive history, but he could not have known that all of God's saving work was going to unfold over the course of many years. And that is the reason for his confusion. Here he's seeing Jesus doing mighty works, saving others, but he is languishing in prison. He has been imprisoned by a wicked ruler, Herod, who refused to repent at John's preaching. And he's naturally wondering, are you going to get on with it? Where is that work that I spoke about? Where is that winnowing fork in your hands? Where is the fire? Where is the judgment? Where is the salvation? for God's people. These were probably the questions that were rattling around in his brain as he heard reports about what Jesus was doing. Now, he did not doubt that God would fulfill his word. He simply wondered if Jesus was the one who would bring that fulfillment. And so that doubt, that, uh, that wondering, informs us as we see the answer that Jesus gives. Sometimes when Jesus answers questions of people, we wonder, well, did he really hear the question? It doesn't quite seem at first blush that he was responding to the thing they said, not in a direct way. And yet, when we look closer, we see that he is exactly responding to the question. He here will show John, yes, I am the one for whom you wait. That is the answer that he gives, but he doesn't give it with those words. Rather, he does something and then he says something about what he has done. In verse 21, we see that in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And then he sent these two messengers back to John with a message of his own. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. And what is it that they've seen and now are hearing from Jesus? The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up 
The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In these words, Jesus was drawing from Isaiah, from the prophet Isaiah, in words that he spoke about God's final saving work in history. In Isaiah chapter 29, you can turn there with me in Isaiah 29, or you can listen as I read, but I want to give you some of the context. There in Isaiah 29, Isaiah was speaking broadly about a coming judgment upon Jerusalem, a siege that would be laid. But in the course of that, uh, in, in the course of his words, as he spoke about this coming judgment, in Isaiah 29, he looked forward to another work that the Lord would do. There in verse 17, Isaiah said this, Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field? And the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? That's imagery, speaking of something that God will do. But the next words are going to explain what that's going to look like. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffer cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off. Who by a word make a man out to be an offender, and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate. With an empty plea, turn aside him who is in the right. Jesus has not quoted this exactly, but he has drawn his words from Isaiah 29 and also fused them with words that echo Isaiah 35, where Isaiah spoke very similarly of the work that God would do when he came to save his people. In Isaiah 35, verse 5 and 6, he said, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leak like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. In those words, very rich with imagery, Isaiah spoke of the coming salvation as something that would be giving life and also restoring what was broken in this world. And the pictures of restoration, the pictures of restoration of that which was broken were uh, depicted in the terms of lame people walking and blind people seeing. This is a work that only God can perform. And here in Luke chapter 7, we see that Jesus does just that and he sends these messengers back to John with those words to bring them to his mind so that he might see that Jesus is doing that which God has purposed. John would have been tempted to think, I'm expecting judgment. I'm expecting fire, and I'm not seeing it. Jesus is saying, there's a lot more that you have to look for. Jesus is saying, I'm doing all that God has promised. I am bringing all of it to pass. And so in these words, he's encouraging John to be patient, to wait, and to see that, yes, Jesus is the one, the only one in whom in whose hands this kind of salvation can come. It's kind of like a down payment that you might give when you buy a house. Let me explain this illustration. When you go to purchase a house, usually a bank will require you to pay some amount of money down. And that kind of down payment is a guarantee of sorts. It's not a perfect illustration because there's really no guarantee that just because you paid 20% down that you'll continue carrying out those payments. But it's enough for the bank to be sure that they're going to get their money back if they have to repossess your home. But the down payment does establish some sort of credibility. 
You show the bank that you are someone who is able to pay your debts. And so they can likely trust that you are someone who will continue to pay back those debts. It's not a perfect analogy because God is not repaying a debt. But He is giving a kind of guarantee. He is giving a kind of proof that the things that He has promised, He will surely bring to pass. If He said that the blind will see, if He said that the lame will hear, will walk, the deaf will hear, and the dead will be raised, and that these things would characterize God's saving work when it was ultimately experienced, and then He showed through Jesus that He was bringing these things to pass, even if only in part. He was proving, yes, Jesus Christ is the one who will bring these things to fulfillment. But... Jesus also recognizes that people will be offended by him, and offended by the way in which he does it. And so he encourages John, don't be that kind of person. Don't be offended. He says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who is not scandalized, you could say, by the things that I am doing. That's Jesus' ultimate message to John. I'm doing the work. You need to be patient. You need to be wait. You need to wait. You need to trust. I'm able. I'm willing. And I will surely do that which I have purposed. That's Jesus' message to John. And it's his message to us when we face similar difficulties in our lives. When we look at our lives and evaluate it and assess the challenges that we face and wonder, is God really for us? Is God really doing his saving work? Is God really doing the things that He has promised to me? We are likewise challenged to wait and to trust that God indeed is doing that which He has purposed according to His time, per His agenda, on His timetable. And He will surely do those things, and death will not stop Him. Our death will not stop Him from fulfilling all of His promises to us. But in the meantime, the way in which He brings those things to pass will be an offense to many. The way in which he does his work may even be an offense to us. So Jesus encourages us with a word. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I've drawn your attention to this before, and I, I want to do it again, that Luke has an affinity for Beatitudes. We've seen already several Beatitudes in Luke's Gospel. He doesn't concentrate them mostly in one place like Matthew does in the Sermon on the Mount. Rather, he distributes these Beatitudes throughout his narrative. And we saw the first Beatitude in Luke 1.45 when Elizabeth said of Mary, Blessed is the one who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of that which the Lord has spoken. There, Elizabeth turned the attention, her attention and Mary's attention to God's eternal purposes and assured Mary that her faith made her blessed. She was blessed because she believed the Lord. Why? Because there will be a fulfillment. God does not make a promise and then only do it halfway. God does not procrastinate like us. He does not leave jobs half done. He does all that he says he will do. And so Elizabeth told Mary she was blessed because she believed. And likewise, we saw at the beginning of the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6, four more Beatitudes that turned our attention to eternal things where Jesus spoke of the blessedness of those who are poor and those who hunger and those who suffer for His sake. Why? Because there will be a reversal. The poor are 
those, the poor in this sense, those people who are poor for Christ's sake, those people who are trusting in Christ, theirs is the kingdom of God. And the hungry, they will be satisfied, though they hunger now. Those who are persecuted, they will be vindicated. Those are the things that Jesus was assuring us in the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6. He was turning our attention to eternal things. But very often in this life we wonder, why can't I have the reversal now on my schedule, on my time frame? And here we get a further beatitude that turns our attention as we look at eternal things also to the one who brings them to pass turns our attention to Christ and shows us the blessedness of trusting Him. Blessed is the one who is not offended by Him. Ultimately, He would speak of a cross. Ultimately, He would tell His disciples that it was necessary for Him to suffer and to die and on the third day be raised. But they weren't thinking like that. They were thinking, no, it's necessary for you to go to Jerusalem and sit on a throne and reign and bring in a kingdom. They didn't see the necessity of the cross. They were tempted to take offense at that preaching. In fact, they did. But patiently, Jesus taught them. He gave them understanding so that they might see the necessity of the cross. We have the benefit of hindsight, and still we are often offended by the preaching of the gospel. And we live in a culture that is offended by the preaching of the gospel. Oh, it's one thing for people to believe that Jesus died and rose, but who are you to tell me that I'm a sinner who needed that? That's the way our culture responds. Or who are you to tell me that Jesus is the only way? Not a way, a truth, and a life, but you're saying He's the way, the truth, and the life. And that offends our culture. We'll be tempted to be offended by that too. But even for us, even for those who have embraced this gospel, who believe this gospel, when we hear words like Jesus spoke to his disciples and would teach them that we must endure many difficulties and trials in this life, not that they might come, but they surely will come, and we may even endure intense persecution for the sake of the gospel, say, well, that's not what I signed up for. The temptation is to take offense at Christ. And in those situations, we need to be assured there is a way that is blessed. Not because it is free from persecution, free from hunger, free from poverty, but because Christ is faithful to bring His people through those things. And He is the only way by which we might be saved. He is the only one who can make a person truly blessed. No blessedness comes that is eternal. No eternal blessedness comes apart from Him. And that's the message that Jesus holds forth to John and to us in this first lesson on true blessedness. In the second lesson, Jesus turns His attention to the crowds and He speaks concerning John to them. And here He's going to give them and us a lesson in true greatness. A lesson in true greatness. He asked them a provocative question. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken in the wind? It's like saying, why did you go on this vacation? You were trying to see the grass? Did you, you just wanted to see maybe the trees in this place of the world? It's not what you, why you go on a vacation. You might enjoy looking at trees or enjoying the landscapes in the place you go to, but you don't go to look at a little reed blowing in the wind. No, the, the answer is obviously no. It's rhetorical. 
Then he asked another question. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Oh, did you go out because there was this great man that you heard about who was out there and he was dressed like a king and you said, why would this king be in the wilderness? Again, it's a provocative question. The answer is no. That's not where you find that kind of person. You don't find kings in the wilderness. You find those people in the courts of rulers and kings. You find people dressed in soft clothing in a place of luxury. Here Jesus is dealing with categories of greatness in human terms. He's acknowledging that the people understood that John's greatness was of a different sort. They didn't go out to the wilderness because they heard about a guy who was great in worldly terms. They went out to see a prophet. And more than a prophet, Jesus tells them. You can imagine their interest in a guy like John. There hadn't been any prophets in Israel for a long time. So for a prophet to arise in Israel at that time, it was an indication that God was doing a mighty work. They went out to see John as a prophet. And Jesus wants them to know he's not just a prophet. He's more than a prophet. He is the final prophet that God spoke about through all the other prophets who would come before the Christ the messenger who would precede the Lord. And Malachi spoke about him. In Malachi 3.1, which he quotes here, he fulfills these words of Malachi, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your ways before you. And then John uses all of this to give them a lesson on true greatness. John is the greatest man who was ever born, according to Jesus. Among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet The one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. But to understand this lesson, we need to understand the categories of greatness that Jesus is working with. Many of you know I served in the Navy for a long time. In the Navy, you advance in rank, and you wear that rank on your uniform so that everyone can see, well, there is a great man. He is the captain of a ship, or he is the admiral in charge of a fleet of ships. That's a great person. And your rank indicated your relative degree of greatness to everyone. They could see it on your sleeve or on your shoulder. But there was another way of signifying someone's greatness, not a greatness that was uh, uh, part of his own rank, but a greatness through his proximity to someone else. We called those guys loopers. They wore a a gold loop around their shoulder because they served as the aide to an admiral or in the army an aide to a general. And these people, when they'd walk around, you knew, well, they don't really outrank most of the people around here, but that person's one degree away from the admiral. And so you treated that person with that kind of respect, that kind of greatness that wasn't his own greatness. It was the greatness of someone else because of his proximity to the one who is great. In the same way, John was great. Why? He was the last prophet to come before the Christ. He was the one who saw clearest, who came closest to the Christ. And so in the category of those born of women, he is the greatest who has ever lived, Jesus says. And yet there's a different category altogether. It's not the category of those born of women, but it's the category of those who are citizens in the kingdom of God. And even the least in that kingdom is greater than John. Here we are informed by what Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3. You don't get into the kingdom of God by being born of women. 
The prerequisite for entrance into the kingdom of God is what? You must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. Spirit of God must give you new life. And that is how you gain entrance into the kingdom of God. And when you step into that new category, that new plane of greatness, Jesus says, it doesn't matter where you sit. You may be the least, as we read in the call to worship, the doorkeeper in the house of God, and yet your place is greater than any place occupied by anyone in this fallen world. Jesus wants the crowds to understand that as great as John was, there is a greater, a possibility of greater greatness available to them through faith in him. They went to see John, a prophet, but John pointed to another, to Jesus. And here Jesus now calls them, follow the one to whom he pointed. Follow me. Find true greatness, not in the place where the world finds it, not in royal courts, not as we are so predisposed in the uh, amount of money you have in your checking account or in the position you hold in your corporation or in the things you've accomplished in your life, but find your greatness in Jesus Christ, in knowing Him. Be that kind of person who boasts in the Lord and in knowing the Lord, as we read so often in Scripture from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians and from the prophet Jeremiah. This is true greatness. It's not something that is intrinsic to us. It's something that comes through Christ, just like true blessedness comes through Christ and Christ alone. True greatness, eternal greatness, lasting greatness comes through Christ and Christ alone. In this world, we're going to be challenged by offers of greatness, the kind of things that this world has to offer us. We're going to be challenged by those things and we're going to be tempted to doubt God's purposes and think maybe that really is a better sort of life. We need to be reminded by these kinds of lessons. We need to hear the words of Jesus as He instructs us that true greatness is not found in this life or anything that we can have or accomplish, but it's found in Him alone. Now Jesus will turn His attention once more. He'll turn it to the scribes and Pharisees, the people that He calls this generation, and He'll give a third lesson, a lesson in true righteousness. But before He does this, Luke has a kind of parenthesis, a kind of a uh, note that he gives us about what took place after Jesus had said this. He tells us that all the people, as they heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declare that God is just. They justified God, you might have in your translation. In other words, they were saying that God's ways are righteous. They were responding rightly to what Jesus had said. And Luke calls particular attention to the tax collectors because we've seen to this point in Luke's gospel that very frequently when we see tax collectors, they are people who respond to the preaching of the gospel with repentance and faith. And yet they were people who were hated, who were despised, who were regarded as evil and wicked men. And yet here they declare God just. And why or in what way did they declare God just? They did it by acting rightly. They did it by being baptized with the baptism of John. This could be saying that they said that God is just, but I think likely what it's saying is that this is the way in which they declared God to be righteous, by embracing His purposes, by embracing the preaching of John and embracing Christ 
And they did this by responding appropriately to what John said. They were baptized with his baptism. In other words, they repented at John's preaching, and now they have come to follow Christ. This creates a contrast in our minds between the tax collectors and people and the scribes and Pharisees, because the scribes and Pharisees did not respond this way. They saw John's baptism, and they said, it's not for us. Repentance, who needs it? They rejected God's purposes for themselves. In other words, they said, this is not for us. We don't need it. Maybe those other guys need this preaching of repentance, but we're good. We, we've, got, we've got this life down. We're following God's commandments. We're doing what we need to be doing. That was their mind, and so they rejected God's purposes because they rejected John's baptism. So Jesus has a lesson for them about true righteousness. These are people who think they're righteous in themselves. Jesus wants them to know that just as true blessedness and true greatness comes through Christ alone, so also true righteousness comes through Christ alone. He asks them a question. What shall I compare this generation to? To what shall I compare this generation? This generation refers here to the scribes and Pharisees. What are they like? They're like children in the marketplace who play this kind of unwinnable game. Heads I win, tails you lose would be the way we say it. No matter what, you're going to lose the game. If I play the flute, I say I played the flute, but you didn't dance. And so you start dancing. And then what do I do? I say, oh, no, 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 I was singing a dirge. You should have been weeping. Children who are playing a cruel game, finding fault with you no matter what. That's the parable. That's the picture. And they're like these children. Why? Because in the course of time, what did they say? John came. They said, ah, this guy's crazy. This guy has a demon. He doesn't eat. He fasts. All right, okay, you want fasting, so Jesus comes, and oh, he's a glutton, he's a drunkard, he, he dines with sinners and tax collectors. They condemn John for his asceticism. They condemn Jesus for his indulgence. The question that comes before them, just like any hypocrite is faced with this question, well, what's the rule? What's the standard? And the standard is, I just don't like him. I just reject him. I, I'm just going to find a rule to justify my rejection of him. That's what the scribes and the Pharisees have done with John, and it's what they're doing with Jesus, as we've seen in Luke. When he dined with sinners and tax collectors back in chapter 5, we saw that they asked, why? Why does he do this? Why does he gather with people like that? If he's so great, if he's such a righteous teacher, he wouldn't be with them. And here, what they're doing, we're going to see the explanation of it in verse 35. They are attempting to declare God just. This is a difficult verse to translate. In the ESV it says, Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. In the King James Version it has something like, Wisdom is justified of her children. And interpreters differ on how to translate it. But I'd like to suggest to you that Jesus is saying that the people who are doing the justifying in this case are the scribes and Pharisees. They are justifying wisdom. And wisdom in this case is a term that signifies God's purposes or or perhaps points to the Holy Spirit particularly. And the way that the Holy Spirit, we're going to see in Luke's gospel, is frequently associated with the gift of wisdom. They would justify wisdom by separating her from her bona fide children. That is, they would justify God by separating from Him, from the people in whom He is really working. 
the people who are responding to the truth that he has proclaimed through John and through Jesus. They are wisdom's children. They are God's children in this case. And the scribes and Pharisees are justifying God, attempting to, by saying, oh, no, 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 God has nothing to do with them. He wouldn't have anything to do with those people. And yet, they really are God's children. They really are His people because He's wrought this work in their lives, in their hearts, by which they've responded to the gospel and embraced Christ in faith. The scribes and Pharisees say, no, no, no. No, that can't be right. A just God wouldn't do that. That's Jesus' complaint about them. They think that righteousness is something that comes from within. They think that righteousness is something that you do by your own self-discipline. How do you be righteous? You keep the commandments. How do you be righteous? You do what God says, and you keep our traditions. That would be the message of the Pharisees, and it's false, and it will lead to their condemnation. And if we embrace that kind of vision of righteousness, it will kill us. It will destroy us. There's only one true righteousness, and it comes from God, and it is received by faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, who is for us righteousness, whose righteousness is credited to our account because our sin was credited to His account on the cross. This, at the end of the day, is the offense of the gospel. It's the thing that in every generation no one wants to hear unless God graciously works in our hearts, in our lives, to cause us to be born again so that we receive it with joy like the people and tax collectors, and not as an offense like the scribes and Pharisees. And yet, it's what we need to hear, and it's what we need to hold forth to the world. True righteousness, lasting righteousness, comes through faith in Christ, faith alone. There is no other way to be declared righteous before God. The Pharisees don't understand this. They don't have this vision. And so, they reject the only one who can accomplish their deliverance. What about us? What about our situation? I've suggested already throughout the sermon, and I'll say it again, that our culture presses against us. Our culture challenges us to doubt these things. You've heard them before, for many of you. It's not new to hear the declaration that justification comes by faith and faith alone. It's not new to hear it preached that blessedness comes through Christ. It's not new to hear that true greatness has to do with being part of God's kingdom, not with what we can accomplish or gain in this world. And yet, our world has a way of making us doubt this. Maybe it's not really the case. Our world has a way of putting pressure on us so that we entertain simply the thought that Maybe there's blessedness elsewhere, in comfort, in ease, in success. This is our natural desire. Our natural disposition to think, is to think that true blessedness is something that we experience in this life. Family, seeing our children growing old and retiring early, these kinds of natural inclinations that aren't in themselves wrong, but if we put our hope in those things, and even think, as some will teach, that believing in Christ is about having that kind of good life. That if you simply trust Him and keep His commandments, then He'll give you 
comfort and ease and success, which is very clearly the opposite of what he said we will face. It's not saying that you can't experience those things in this life. It's saying you need to recognize that's not the true and lasting blessedness that Christ has promised. The same with greatness. It's an alluring call when our world holds before us the promise of greatness. It can happen at work with the offer of promotions where in your ambition you're tempted to seek that kind of greatness in a way that's contrary to our calling as Christians by uh, affirming things that we cannot affirm, by acting in ways that are underhanded, deceitful, and selfish. It's not to say that you can't rise up the ranks and be promoted by simply doing a great job. But it's also to recognize that sometimes it's tempting to pursue those things apart from faithfulness to Christ. And there's that alluring call, and it only grows in our heart if we give in to it until we're left believing that, no, true greatness is something I make of myself. True greatness is something I get in this life. And we need to be reminded We need to hear this message again and again, even as people who have believed. And above all, we need to hear that that true righteousness, the only righteousness that can commend us to a holy God, is the righteousness that comes from Christ. The cultural wind in the current moment is one where our culture would seek to persuade us with pressure, would seek to convince us that that's not true. It might be okay for you to embrace that perspective, But it's not okay for you to foist it on anyone else. Our culture would say, who are you to suggest that this gospel is the one gospel? That this gospel is the only way by which people can be saved. And our culture would continue to put pressure on us and say, no, 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 no. The things that you say are sin. They're not really sin. And true righteousness is actually found in things like tolerating all sorts of things that are contrary to God's word. True righteousness is found in a, in a particular uh, way of life that is consistent with our, our world's values. I, I have a friend recently who uh, asked one of these artificial intelligences to write a Ten Commandments that was based in modern cultural values. And the first things on the list were respect other people's autonomy. Did you see that idea about respecting someone's autonomy? The first of the Ten Commandments is what? It's about God. It's about seeing that God is God. The first of our modern Ten Commandments is about what? Me. Me being the one who's in charge. That's the way our world thinks, and it would pressure us, not through arguments of persuasion, but through active pressure, whether it's in the workplace or whether it's simply in your community, to act in a particular way where you give into this standard of righteousness. It is no righteousness at all. What do we do? How do we respond to these things? We do what we've learned in the text before us this morning. We recalibrate our expectations and our hopes and our ambitions according to the standard that Christ has given us. There is one true and lasting blessedness. It doesn't change. That's what the standard does. It doesn't change. There's one true lasting measure of greatness. It doesn't change because that's what a standard does. It doesn't change. There's one true and lasting measure of righteousness. It's in Christ. It doesn't change. God does not change. That's what a standard does. Our world's standards, they change every season, every year. 
They are not fixed. They are no standards at all. So we must not calibrate our standards to those standards. We must calibrate our standards to the only one that will never change. The measure of blessedness and greatness and righteousness that comes through Christ alone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know, O Lord, that we are unable in our own strength to do this work of adjusting our hopes and our ambitions to your standards. Even this is a great grace that we need you to work in our lives. And yet you promise that a means by which you do this work, through the Spirit working in us, is your word. As we read it, as we hear it preached. And so we trust, Lord, and we ask that you would do this work so that we might go forth from this place a people, a people who love your word, people who love your son, the people who are not offended by him, but rather see in him, in his person, in his work, our only hope for eternal blessedness. This we pray, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.